You're very welcome to this afternoon's uh, Executive Office Committee meeting. Um, we will begin with item one, which is apologies. I have received an apology from Pat. Do we have any other uh, apologies? Okay, none at the moment. So hopefully the few outstanding members will join us as the meeting progresses. If we move into Chairman's business, there's just a couple of items that I want to deal with. Um, the first is that members will have seen last week the large turnout that there was from members of the travel industry. Now, they held a protest due to the significant issues that the travel industry is facing at this time. The pandemic has obviously shut the industry down at the beginning, and that ever-changing green and amber and red list is really draining confidence out of the sector. And I'd like to see that stability for the sector with the proper warning uh, for the changes to countries' designations, maybe to see a review of that 10-day um, uh, game where people have to isolate, given that in other uh, regions they're able to use the five-day quarantine and then test and release. Um, and also uh, there was a promised financial scheme uh, and I'd like to see that being delivered because it was promised back in March by the department and we're now into uh, July. So we had actually had the discussion in the committee for the statutory resolution for that. Can I just check, Michael, when was that that we discussed that? That, that was on the 14th of April, but in fact, the SR has been in force since the 19th of March. So, so we did it retrospectively. Okay, so there was from March they had the capacity within the executive to deliver this payment for the industry. Uh, we discussed that retrospectively then uh, in April, but that finance still hasn't been handed out to the travel schemes and uh, sectors. So, look, could I get approval from people? Can we write to the department and ask them really just to to work as quick as they can to try and help out? Thinking particularly of those travel agents right across. Um, the North that are are struggling because they have limited product to sell um, and also the fact that, you know, they've had a very, very tough time like everybody else. So would there be agreement okay for that? Yeah, great. Okay. Um, then also... Uh, we have, as a committee, undertook significant work and had representations, uh, and a lot of our time in the past period has been spent discussing the Victims Payment Scheme, um, and it's a delayed scheme, and at long last it has progressed, uh, although I know that there are still some outstanding issues regarding the finances of that. However, I know I was, and I'm sure other members were concerned this week to hear that the contract has been awarded uh, to Capita. Uh, I think all MLAs of all sides of the House will have had some horror stories through their constituency offices of people and their interactions uh, as part of the um, PEP awards and other changes in the welfare sector. And what I would suggest, given that we have had some involvement with this scheme, is that we would write to the Justice Department, our Justice Committee, and ask that they uh, maybe call the Justice Minister to their uh, committee just to get assurances that there will be a proper scheme put in place uh, and that we won't get a rerun of many of the horror stories that we have because I think we're all aware these are some of the most impacted um, and vulnerable uh, people in our community as a result of things that were beyond their control uh, and really that for them the fear that has happened this week and on hearing this news will uh, give grave concern to them, but maybe if the Justice Committee could raise that issue, it might help to address that. 
So would there be agreement just to write to the Justice Committee and ask them to do that? Yeah, okay. Um, and finally, under Chairman's remarks, just maybe to remind members that we are listed next week for the debate about um, the redress scheme. Uh, that's tabled for next Tuesday, I think it is. Um, so just, uh, uh, yeah, uh, is it Monday or Tuesday, Monday, um, just, and that's based on the uh, information that was provided to us last week by um, those representatives of the various um, HIA groups and some of the written uh, concerns that have been raised to us. So uh, we'll have that. And really, that's just to ask for a review, uh, but just to get it on record of the House that the committee has been doing that work and that that's been the, the, the information that's coming from the sectors on the ground. So that's next week. Um, also, it's normal practice for committees to delegate authority to the chairperson and deputy chairperson during uh, periods of recess uh, to submit views on releasing or withholding information in any non-routine or contentious FOI requests that are received. If any such requests are received, the committee will be advised of the request, including the views expressed by the chair or deputy chair and the response issued by the FOI unit at the first meeting following the recess period. I don't think it happens very much during normal times, but it's just there as a standard in case anything happens during the summertime. Uh, our members content to delegate authority to the chair and deputy chair during the summer period recess? Okay. And then we can move on then to item three, which is the draft minutes. Uh, the draft minutes of the meeting held on the 23rd are at page six of the meeting pack, and the draft minutes of the meeting with Mr. Sefcovic on Monday uh, are in the tabled pack. Are members content that the minutes are a true reflection of the proceedings? Yeah. Okay, that's grand. We'll get those sorted. Uh, matters arising, just uh, the... I had suggested to Vice President Sefcovic um, that we engage again in the autumn time just to have a further update from him, and he was quite open and agreeable to that. But I would just need the committee's permission to write to him and request that uh, we maybe meet with him in October or November again. Would members be happy for that to be issued? Uh, Chair, I'd be happy enough with that. You can hear me, but uh, I think in fairness, we, we should maybe remind Lord Frost that we have invited him as well. Like to hear both sides of stories, if possible, you know. Absolutely. Well, hopefully, we still haven't received, as I understand it, any uh, reply from from Lord Frost yet, which means that he hasn't said no. So I hope that we can interpret that he's uh, wrangling with his diary to try and find a spot to be able to come uh, and meet with us to discuss things. So um, hopefully, that will happen uh, in in September, really, at this stage. So we'll see how that goes. Um, Two ticks yet is what you're saying, Chair. Uh, yes, yes, just just one tick at this stage, and, and, and yes, we need the two, we need the blue, and we need a reply. So hopefully we'll get that sorted in in the coming weeks, and then we'll have something set up for September time. Um, okay, matters arising from Monday's meeting, Diane. Were you looking to come in there? Yep. Sorry. Um, gosh, I can't even think of what it was I was gonna. I was asking you about. Come on, Diane. You're going to force me to remember. Oh, go on, remind me. 
no, you're going to force me to remember. Um, the clerk will will up to you. You're the you're the fount of all knowledge. Can you remember what myself and Diane spoke about? <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly admit to eavesdropping on on you, chair. <laughs> Um, I'll come back to you, it's fine. Okay, if it comes back to you, I know you did, you, you, you had a point that you I wanted. know there was specifically something that I wanted to ask you about, it's just dreadful of me that I can't remember at this moment in time, but it will come back to me, sorry. Age, age. Both having senior moments. <laughs> I have long COVID for myself. I have no excuse whatsoever. I can, and, and I think if it, if it comes back to me, I, I, I'll try and remember as well. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Yeah. Chairman on that point that um, um raised, I think it's actually a very valid point and it's an important point. And I think, I think it's frankly uh, a disgrace that you haven't received a response from the noble Lord Frost in relation to a request to come to speak to this committee. Uh, you know, we understand that um, the sort of power to negotiate on these matters resides in Westminster, but it's basic courtesy to the elected representatives of the people of Northern Ireland to come and explain just what it is you're playing at. So I don't know whether uh, I suppose he answers directly to Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, or even the Prime Minister, I suppose, he, because the, it was Gove who was leading on this and that then was moved to Lord Frost. Whether that means writing to Downing Street or to the Cabinet Office to express, I mean, this is now going through, there's things going through court and verdicts that have been issued by courts that demonstrate the constitutional significance of all of this stuff. And I just think it's basic courtesy that he, that he should come and answer our questions and outline what exactly his approach is in these matters. So if you need someone, if you want me to propose it, I'm perfectly happy to propose it, that something goes to Downing Street, uh, basically asking that he present himself. Okay, well, can I suggest that Given that we're this is our last meeting today uh, for the recess, that maybe if we issue a reminder letter today, uh, uh, in the case that maybe it's been overlooked or it's in a pile or it's there, to be, and that we stress the importance of meeting for him on the back of having met Mr. Sefcovitz, that we would like to achieve that balance and that really we would like that meeting, given that we're going into recess, to occur if not at our first meeting in September, our second meeting, so that it happens ASAP. Yeah, absolutely, Chair. Although, I mean, I have to say, as you know, as everyone on this committee knows, I'm obviously no fan of the European Union. The Vice President of the European Commission made himself available to us. An unelected member of the House of Lords can do the same. Yes. Actually, I thought that he had met with us because he thought that you liked him so much, Christopher, but that must have been lost in the translation and the whatever language. Okay. Um, Diane, I've just remembered... <laughs> I've just remembered that it was about uh, equivalence of qualifications, um, that there was the concern that maybe some of the qualifications, even on an all-island basis, 
um, that there may be some disparity between them as a result of Brexit and to get some clarification on that. Right. So, so the issue then is that I thought that it would be useful. Uh, that's brilliant, Colin. You're amazing. Um, <laughs> the issue that I thought that we we um, could ask um, the vice president to maybe clarify as well for us, and I thought the committee might be minded um, to write about this is one of the biggest issues that Northern Ireland is primarily a service economy. So 70% of our economy is services. And many of those services have all island bodies, um, like the, the Chartered Accountants, etc., the Chartered Accountants of Ireland, whose president this year is from Belfast. So they kind of take it a year about to do, to do this. Um, and one of the things that they constantly bring up to me is um, an agreement around the mutual recognition of qualifications. Um, and I, my understanding is at this minute in time that it is the EU that are a bit hesitant on this issue. But even if we wanted to write to um, both Lord Frost and the Vice President, that would be a really good um, positive um, issue that we could investigate around the mutual recognition of qualifications. Because really for solicitors, for accountants, for all of those people, I mean, believe it or not, during the European part, I, I actually did a case about scaffolders whose qualifications were not recognised in Dublin, but you know were here. So it it, it trans goes through all areas of the economy and is one of those areas that that um, we would all benefit from having a mutual um, you know a, agreement around. Okay, yeah, I think it's really. I think a lot of us have probably been uh, lobbied about that, that about the issue of mutual recognition of qualifications. So members, would you be happy if we wrote to both? Uh, individuals there on that issue. Okay, that's good. Thank you, Dan. And of course, um, the clerk has paid the big wages because he remembered to message me there. So I can't even take the. I can't take that uh, for that. Although um, the clerk's remarked that he wasn't listening into our conversation, I will have to take with a pinch of salt. Um, members, we can bring Sean McGeehan up and then to the. Uh, spotlight and just maybe for a few minutes we don't i don't think we even need to drop the members out just if we brought um shauna up just to see if there's any updates uh, i suppose there's been a, a bit of an update today shauna but maybe not just as much of an update beyond that from from monday but just to pass to yourself uh to give us a few words before we bring the junior ministers in even though they're in the audience but <laughs> Thanks, uh, Chair. So uh, I better mind my P's and Q's here then. Um, no, uh, so obviously I was at the committee uh, around uh, five or six weeks ago. So um, I had supplied a paper there in advance um, with sort of the, the, the happenings of the, over the last month, Chair. So I'm conscious of time. So if you don't mind, I'll just sort of pick out some highlights from that. I'm obviously happy to, to take questions rather than sort of reading through it uh, verbatim. Um, so since I was last at the committee, the eighth meeting of the Withdrawal Agreement Joint Committee was held on the 9th of June. Uh, and following that meeting, Lord Frost said that while there'd been no breakthroughs, there'd been no breakdown, uh, and the talks would continue. Um, Lord Frost said the EU is insisting on operating the protocol in an extremely purist way. Um, but conversely, uh, Mr. Shevchevich said that the EU is positive we can find a solution where there is a will, there is a way. Um, but he said that the patience within the EU was wearing thin. Um, they would assess all options at their disposal um, and warned against any further unilateral action from the UK. Um, the government's statement following the meeting said there was an urgent need for further discussions to make real progress. 
um, on a range of issues, including critical issues such as medicines, uh, SPS checks, chilled meats, movement of pets, TRQs for steel, etc. Um, the government said it understands that further proposals will be received from the EU in relation to the supply of medicines to Northern Ireland, in relation to approval processes for high-risk plants intended for export to the EU and moved into Northern Ireland, uh, and in relation to livestock movements. Um, the government said that the UK will work out actively to find solutions, but if solutions cannot be found, the government will, of course, continue to consider all options available for safeguarding peace, prosperity and stability in Northern Ireland. Um, the EU statement emphasised that there is no alternative to the protocol. Its full implementation is our priority and we will not accept anything less from our UK partners. Um, and then following that, Chair, you'll be aware that the UK formally asked the Commission to extend the grace period for chilled meats uh, preparations, uh, moving GB to NI, which expires today. Um, the Commission said it was assessing the request, noting its openness to finding solutions. Um, there have been subsequent discussions between Lord Frost and Mr. Shetovich, and I understand the announcement is expected around half three this afternoon, so we'll, we'll wait and, and keep an eye out for that one. Um, in respect of the Joint Consultative Working Group, which uh, is the body under the withdrawal agreement where the UK and the EU exchange information on law applicable to Northern Ireland under the protocol, it held its third meeting in May. Um, the withdrawal agreement does state that that group should meet uh, on a monthly basis. They also have been aware there's been quite a bit of a, a local engagement. Um, Lord Frost and Brandon Lewis have held a number of meetings with businesses and civic society in Northern Ireland over recent months to, uh, in their words, listen to experiences and to reaffirm the government's commitment to addressing the issues with the protocol. They also visited the port in Larne and met with staff from Border Force, from DERA and from the European Commission. Uh, and the EU has likewise also undertaken some engagement in Northern Ireland with businesses, civic society and other stakeholders. Uh, and indeed, the Vice President um, of the Commission held meetings with leaders of local parties. Um, since the paper went to the committee chair, the UK and the EU have published the Withdrawal Agreement Joint Committee Annual Report. So that's a report that will come out each year and that details activity, meetings and decisions of the Joint Committee. Um, Moving on uh, quickly, Chair, then to the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Uh, members will be aware that the Partnership Council, which is the top tier of governance of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, is co-chaired by Lord Frost and uh, Maros Shevchevich. And Lord Frost wrote to the First Minister and Deputy First Minister, as well as the Scottish and Welsh governments uh, at the end of May, to outline how he sees the involvement of the devolved administrations in that Partnership Council. Uh, his letter said that where items of devolved competence are on the agenda of the Partnership Council or specialised committees, they expect to facilitate attendance by the devolved administrations and that officials in Cabinet Office should regularly discuss strategic and cross-cutting EU, EU issues with devolved officials. Um, and the inaugural meeting of that Partnership Council then was also held on the 9th of June, the same day uh, as the Joint Committee. Um, they um, both welcomed the EU and the UK, both welcomed the entry into force of the TCA and agree, agreed a decorative timetable for meetings of the various committees and working groups that are established under that agreement. Um, they also encouraged further work in establishing the Parliamentary Partnership Assembly, um, which, as members will know, is, is going to be co-chaired by the UK Parliament and the European Parliament. Um, so there's discussion really about uh, the different uh, types of agreements, uh, sub, sub agreements, if you like, that have to be reached under the TCA. Um, the UK and the EU agreed uh, reached an agreement in principle on fishing opportunities for the remainder of the year uh, in relation to total allowable catches. And that's the first agreement on fisheries made under the TCA. 
They also reached a deal on post-Brexit financial services regulation. Uh, a memorandum of understanding has been agreed, but is yet to be signed, which will basically set the conditions for how the UK and the EU financial regulators will share information. But it doesn't mean that the UK financial industry will have automatic access to EU markets again. Um, the Commission also adopted a recommendation in respect of a UK-EU competition cooperation agreement. Um, so it's in relation to um, competition matters, uh, antitrust merger control and things like that. So that recommendation is now going forward to the Council for consideration. And there's also been an important uh, agreement in relation to data adequacy. So the Commission adopted two adequacy decisions for the UK, one in relation to GDPR and one in relation to law enforcement. So that really relates to um, the effective uh, free flow of personal data from the EU to the UK, um, where it benefits from an essentially equivalent level of protection guaranteed under EU law. So basically, in a nutshell, the EU has agreed that the UK system for data protection and the holding and exchange of data um, meets their standards. Um, the adequacy decision, interesting, does include a sunset clause, so these provisions will be reviewed in four years' time. Um, but that's an important uh, move forward um, and uh, was a, a, key, um, a key aspect of, of the future relationship. Um, and on trade deals, then the UK has agreed in principle a trade deal with Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein. Um, and the member nations of the CPTPP, which is the Tongue Twister Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, that was agreed on the 8th of June. So the member nations have agreed to allow the UK to start the process of joining that partnership. Um, it includes Japan, Canada, Australia, Vietnam, New Zealand, Singapore, Mexico, Peru, Brunei, Chile, and Malaysia, and it removes 95% of tariffs. But unlike the EU, it doesn't, it doesn't seek wider political integration. It's very much, much uh, focused on, on trade. Um, and that's an important step forward for um, the UK, who argued actually that the Australia trade agreement would be an important stepping stone there. And members will know that from the 17th, on the 17th of June, the UK announced that it had secured a trade deal with Australia, which is its very first from scratch uh, trade deal uh, since leaving the EU. Um, under the deal, Australia will be able to send a certain amount of agricultural goods per year to the UK without payment of tariffs. But over time, these quotas will increase, and after 15 years, there will be no quotas or tariffs on agricultural products apart from rice. So for beef, for example, uh, 35,000 tonnes will be allowed into the UK before tariffs kick in. But over the next 10 years, then this limit will increase to 110,000 tonnes. Uh, on common frameworks, the government has published the 11th Common Frameworks Report, um, which is the periodic statutory requirement they have for laying a report on how common frameworks are going. And it says the work is well underway to resolve issues arising from the introduction of the common frameworks process and the protocol. Um, EU settlement scheme, uh, members will know that um, it finishes today. The deadline is today. Um, and just on that, just to highlight um, a development in relation to citizens' rights is that um, just earlier um, last week, the Advocate General for the European Court of Justice has published an opinion in a case against the Executive's Department for Communities, uh, stating that the department is guilty of ind indirect discrimination on the grounds of nationality because it uh, is a, ca a case uh, concerning a Dutch-Croatian national who applied for universal credit. She lives in Northern Ireland. Um, but the case was refused by the Department for Communities in June 2020, even though she had pre-settled status in the UK. 
So this is the opinion of the applicant term general for the ECJ. So the, a full judgment from the ECJ will be delivered in several months' time, but in around 80% of cases, the applicant general's opinion is a good reflection for what the overall opinion for the ECJ um, will decide. Worth noting that the opinion relates to um, the Social Security uh, a set of Social Security EU exit regulations in 2019, mm -hmm. which were scrutinised in Westminster and were signed by the Minister. We weren't meeting the Assembly and the Executive weren't meeting at that time, so that um, piece of secondary legislation was actually done in Westminster. Um, and just finally, Chair, just a couple um, of things to highlight to members. Uh, new Brexit Opportunities Unit has been established within the Cabinet Office to support Lord Frost in his work. Um, the Task Force on Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform, chaired by Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, has published an, its report um, on regulatory reform for the UK, really, um, in a nutshell, talking about uh, reductions in bureaucracy and red tape um, on the back of Brexit. And the Competition Markets Authority is seeking views on how the new Office for the Internal Market will work. Um, just on the back of a question from Ms Dodds there in relation to professional qualifications, so... The government has introduced a professional qualifications bill uh, in May to set out the new uh, UK framework for rec recognition of professional qualifications and experience from overseas. It will apply to Northern Ireland, so legislative consent will be sought from um, Economy and Economy Committee. Um, so basically, it uh, very briefly then says that um, mutual recognition of qualifications, obviously between the UK and EU, has ended. So UK workers wanting to work in the EU or vice versa have to meet the qualification requirements in the host country. Um, and the TCA actually does outline that both sides will have to establish more detailed reciprocal arrangements on a sector-by-sector -sector basis. So it, it does sound like it's very much an evolving picture uh, and will go along. Um, obviously, it, it doesn't apply in respect of the, the common travel area. Um, and I know, for example, that there's there in terms of um, Northern Ireland and the Republic, I know the law societies have worked together on a, on a reciprocal arrangement, but it is very much on a case-by-case case and sectoral, um, sectoral basis. Um, and on voting rights, there's been a decision of the UK government in re respect to voting rights, where um, local voting and candidacy rights for EU citizens who have arrived in the UK since the 1st of January will rest on the principle of a mutual grant of rights with other EU member states. Um, and anybody, any EU citizens living in Northern Ireland before the end of December will have the right to vote in uh, local elections. So, Chair, sorry that was very rushed there, but I'm just conscious of the, of the time. I wanted to gallop through those sort of key developments. Happy to take any questions from members. Okay, Shona, thank you very much indeed. Always appreciated to get that summary of all that's been happening and to have it all coordinated into one space for us to be able to, to flick through. Um, are there any points of clarification that anybody would like to get on that? Um, and again, just note before we do that it's just a, a matter of clarification that the points that are in there we're raising with the, the junior ministers. Um, Diane? Yeah, just Shauna, if the, you have anything on the new bill that was published um, around competition law, um, not not for now, but uh, for a later stage, because um, obviously for services, we will um, adhere to UK competition law, but for um, goods, we are, on, because of the protocol, we are under EU competition law. And whether or not there's anything that we can do to make sure that our companies operating under EU state aid regimes will have fair competition within uh, the UK under the new uh, bill and whether there's any, any work been done on that. 
Thank you. Sorry for giving you more, Shauna. Okay, don't worry. <laughs> okay, happy enough for that, Shauna? Yep, no problem. Uh, Martina? I know there'll be different uh, political opinions about this, Shauna, and I'm obviously not wanting to drag you in that territory, but um, Justice Cotton's rejection today of the challenge on all grounds, it would be good for yourself to send us a read out of that when you get time. And like Diane, apologies for giving you more work. You do plenty. No problem. Okay, that's grand. Thank you very much indeed. Well, look, if that's all the questioning, uh, then Shauna, we can move on to the next element of the meeting. Uh, for that, we'll move members into the audience and then bring up into the spotlight the junior ministers. Um, the, we would like to welcome to the meeting uh, Minister uh, Kearney and Minister Middleton, uh, who have come along to give us the regular update on EU matters and, of course, I'm sure any other matters that we can uh, raise with them while we have them here. Um, we just get Declan there. There we go. Okay. Uh, ministers, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, as ever, for coming along to uh, the committee. Uh, we always look forward to getting the catch up from yourselves. If we can pass over to you then maybe to do a, a short presentation and then we can move into some questions and answers. So whoever wants to take the lead, we'll pass over to yourselves. Thanks, Chair, and hopefully you can hear me, yeah? Yeah, that's good. Uh, well, thanks, first of all, for the invitation and the opportunity to come and uh, speak to you all in relation to the EU exit matters. Uh, the committee will have received a written briefing from uh, myself and Junior Minister Kearney uh, that will provide an update up until the 16th of June. And I'm now going to provide another short brief update. Um, and um, Junior Minister Kearney is going to come in with uh, more information as well. I want to firstly apologise uh, that we've not been able to respond to the request for further information in relation to the status of the common frameworks uh, following the last committee briefing. I know that uh, we have been trying to uh, get the information and check the position in relation to the frameworks, which of course sits within DERA. Uh, and we will of course respond to you as soon as that response is received. Work is continuing across departments to address the residual withdrawal agreement issues related to the end of the transition period. Addressing these issues of course remains an ongoing and fluid process as the UK and the EU continue to engage on a number of areas, including those which are subject to additional grace periods. Both ministers and officials have continued to take the opportunities available to, uh, to them to ensure that the UK government and the EU are fully aware of the, uh, the impacts of the end of the transition period on our businesses and citizens locally, but also to emphasise the need for ongoing engagement with us. We have been clear to our representations uh, to the government that it is essential that we are represented in the governance structures of both the trade and cooperation agreement and the withdrawal agreement as well, particularly where this falls within devolved competence of this executive and Northern Ireland Assembly. Lord Frost has, of course, set out the government's approach to engagement on the TCA implementation. Whitehall departments will be primarily responsible for the detailed implementation of the trade and cooperation agreement within their policy areas, including chairing the relevant uh, specialised committee and engaging directly with their counterparts in each jurisdiction. Executive members will attend the Partnership Council, which oversees the implementation and operation of the TCA at a political level. Where items of devolved competence are, of course, included on the agenda. 
While it is unlikely there will be an opportunity for our ministers to speak at the Partnership Council, a ministerial pre-meeting with Lord Frost will be convened prior to each of the meetings uh, to enable our ministers to put forward their views on the position taken by the government on each agenda item. The first meeting of the Partnership Council was held on the 9th of June, and in preparation, the former First Minister and the Deputy First Minister attended a ministerial pre-meeting chaired by Lord Frost, at which there was an opportunity to put forward their views. The agenda for the Partnership Council included discussions on SPS and customs facilitation, fisheries, law enforcement, long-term visa fees, uh, union programmes and TCA governance structures as well. The next steps are for the first meetings of the 19 specialised committees under the TCA to take place, with the SPS and fisheries committees being considered uh, a priority. The TCA will have interdependencies and interactions with the withdrawal agreement, which means that there is significant potential for a decision taken jointly on the operation of both agreements, which can impact on our businesses, our economy and our citizens as well. There are also implications for both agreements in case of uh, dispute resolution for non-compliance. That is why it will be important for our ministers and our officials to be able to ensure our position is understood in advance of the Partnership Council meetings and that the engagement is meaningful and effective. The Committee will be aware that the European Union Settlement Scheme will close to new applications today. Uh, we have continued to, to do all we can to encourage applications from the EU, the EEA and Swiss citizens living here, and we recognise the valuable contribution that they make to our economy, our culture and our wider society. So the committee will be aware also that we have been supplementing the Home Office media campaign with our local campaign, which over the last number of weeks has focused on the deadline and that, uh, of course, the time was running out to apply. Officials have continued to support the work of the two advocacy agencies, namely STEP and Advice NI, with final messaging, with important reminders also sent to key organisations, including, uh, but not limited to, consulates, the faith leaders, departments and local councils, asking that they continue to do all they can to encourage applications. And finally, for me, the Executive Office will continue to engage with our stakeholders in the Home Office to identify and encourage flexibility for those who may need to make a late application. I'm now going to pass over to Junior Minister Kearney. Thanks, Chair. Hello, Colin. Can you hear me, Colin? Yes? Yes, indeed, Declan. Go on ahead there. Okay, well, listen, Chair, we're I guess, going to ask you to and thanks to Gary for those initial remarks. To continue on the theme of rights, I'll provide Colin an update on Article 2 of the Protocol, which deals with the rights of individuals. The Committee will appreciate the importance of good communication and close relationships in allowing us to be aware of any EU developments which may be relevant to the commitments detailed in Article 2. Our briefing note to the Committee sets out how it is anticipated that information will flow in respect of Article 2 from the NIO. Uh, the Executive Office has commenced regular meetings with the NIO and separately with the uh, Human Rights Commission and the Equality Commission at a working level to allow for identification of emerging areas of focus in relation to Article 2, any impacts of British government activity and any changes that might affect the Executive. There are also ongoing monthly meetings at official level between the NIO, Human Rights Commission and Equality Commission to allow for an exchange of information and the provision of updates. 
including for the commissions to provide information on their work in relation to Article 2. Last year, our officials facilitated the delivery of a webinar on Article 2 for the civil service, which was delivered by NIO officials. It's, it's planned to disseminate a further general awareness raising article shortly, as it is understood that there is further work to be done in relation to training and awareness raising. I now turn to an update on the recent meeting of the Joint Committee. The then First Minister and Deputy First Minister attended the eighth meeting of the Joint Committee on the 9th of June. At the meeting, David Frost set out the challenges that the British government considered to be associated with the introduction of the protocol. The EU called for the protocol to be implemented in full. The then First Minister expressed her support for uh, David Frost's position and stated that uh, Britain to uh, the North trade is of critical economic and political importance. The Deputy First Minister intervened to urge the British government and the EU to work together to find long-term solutions to the political agreements that have been made. While the discussion at the Joint Committee confirmed that progress has been made in finding solutions in some areas, there's still significant divergence between the British government and the EU, particularly on SPS issues. We understand that the EU considers that it may have found solutions in respect of medicines, VAT on second-hand cars, and tariff rate quotas. However, they have not shared the detail of that with us. There have also been indications that the EU has agreed to an extension to the grace period on chilled meats as requested recently by the British government, and an announcement is expected imminently and I believe that may come this afternoon. While the extension is welcome, in that uh, it avoids immediate issues, it does bring a range of issues to a head in October, given the simultaneous ending of grace period for supermarkets and the British government's introduction of controls associated with the first phase of a British border operating model. And we need to monitor this to ensure that we understand the impact for us. There are no meetings uh, of the Joint Committee, further meetings of the Joint Committee scheduled. We continue to monitor progress on ongoing discussions, as well as the engagement of our officials within the Specialised Committee. To conclude, it is clear that there are real challenges remaining that must be addressed. We welcome the discussions that are ongoing on the wide range of issues and that David Frost and Mara Shevchevich are continuing to engage with our businesses and civic society. The message from our business community continues to be the need for agreed long-term solutions, which will give businesses stability to be able to invest and grow. We'll continue to amplify that message in our discussions with both the British government and the EU. And I hope that Colin provides you with a helpful update <laughs> EU matters this afternoon. Okay, ministers, thank you very much indeed for that update. We'll move now to some questions and see if we can get some discussion. Um, ministers, today's High Court judgment, I think, has underscored that any decision on the constitutional future of the North will be taken by the people 
of Northern Ireland. So Brexit does not impact that. That has been clear. Trade conditions that are in place for East-West are similar to the existing SPS checks that already take place, and they do not threaten the constitutional status of the North. Would the ministers agree with me that this is a time for facts, level heads, and not a time for hyperbole, which could cause many outcomes, including, as we know, violence on our streets? Yes, Colin, absolutely. I, I, I would completely concur with uh, uh, your point. Uh, we, we do need to get into the realm of, of facts and dispense with the fake news that I think has had a very regressive effect on the, the wider public discourse. We've touched on this in the committee before. Uh, the, the matter of the, uh, the current constitutional uh, uh, situation has been also addressed in this committee before, but it's explicitly provided for in Article 1 of the Protocol. David Frost himself at a recent Westminster hearing also in a very emphatic way pointed out that uh, the protocol poses no uh, present uh, constitutional uh, threats uh, to the status quo. Uh, he, uh, he has distinguished very, very clearly between the operation of the protocol and any wider constitutional or political issues, which do not apply in our situation. And I think that your, your comments about ensuring that uh, we have level heads uh, in this particular period is especially relevant as we come into uh, what often can be a, a contentious, a controversial and at times a problematic time of the year within our society where uh, issues of rancour and discord can become uh, much more amplified. And therefore, it's, it's particularly important, I think, uh, to take on board your observation and especially at this time of the year that we approach the, uh, the 12th period and uh, all of the celebrations of the orange tradition that surrounds the 11th and the 12th and, and this general time of the year, that all of that takes place in a very calm, reasoned uh, and, and enjoyable atmosphere for all of those who wish to participate in uh, the traditional annual celebrations. Thanks, Chair. Uh, obviously, uh, I will, will disagree with uh, most of what you've said. Uh, the one thing that I do agree with, uh, I think that uh, you know it's a position I've taken since uh, the result of the referendum, is that we do need to be dealing with facts and we do need to have calm heads. Uh, unfortunately, what we have seen over this past uh, four years has been the opposite of that. Uh, we've seen uh, a deliberate upping of the ante uh, around uh, the, the refusal, if you like, to accept uh, the fact that the United Kingdom voted to leave uh, the European Union. Um, we do need level heads because what, what we have seen today is a very politically significant uh, finding from the High Court decision. Now, I, I know that there will be a lot of time um, beyond today to um, digest exactly uh, what the result of that will be. Uh, I think for us as political leaders, uh, we have to recognise that uh, the consequences of this could be um, very difficult uh, for, for, for us locally. Uh, we need to ensure that we do all we can to not only address the, the, the concerns that have been felt right across uh, the unionist community, but uh, as I've said time and time again, the issues uh, brought about by the protocol, you know, they're not issues of orange and green. They, they affect all of our communities. Uh, so we need to ensure, I agree with the point around level heads, 
but we have to respect the fact that there's an entire community. Uh, all of the unionist elected representatives of the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, do not accept the Northern Ireland Protocol. Today, the judgment uh, confirms the fact that the protocol damages the constitutional position of the United Kingdom as it conflicts with the Act of Union. Uh, that, that has been found today, and it's important that we recognise that and that we don't downplay the very serious situation uh, that we currently find ourselves in. I certainly agree with you there, um, Minister Middleton, that, that you know, it is a serious matter. But maybe just to go again, how exactly does the, the protocol threaten the constitutional status, given that even in the judgment there's reference to the fact that the constitutional status of Northern Ireland will be decided as per the Good Friday Agreement, which is by the people of Northern Ireland. So what direct threat is there uh, to, as you said, the concerns amongst unionism, if it still is accepted that the constitutional status of Northern Ireland will only be changed when the people of Northern Ireland make that decision? Not a protocol, not the European Union, not the UK government, the people of Northern Ireland, and, and that is underscored today and has been referenced right from the Good Friday Agreement. Where, where is this threat that people refer to? Yeah, no, th thanks, Chair. Uh, Chair, you will be aware that the, the very nature of the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, creates a buyer uh, in terms of east-west trade. So, so th 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 there's an economic uh, border there, uh, and, and constitutionally that creates a problem. And, and in terms of the judgment today, again, uh, it is clear that there is a conflict between uh, that agreement and the Act of Union. And I think for any unionist, uh, they, they, they will never accept a situation where there's a differentiation in terms of the treatment uh, between the rest of the United Kingdom and ourselves in Northern Ireland. That, that, that's an, a situation that will never be acceptable. And I think when you look at uh, the situation, no doubt we will get on to it around um, the, the um, issue around chilled meats, for example, the fact that Northern Ireland is treated as a third world country to the rest of the United Kingdom, you know, I think anybody looking at that situation and saying, well, look, this has no effect on the constitutional position of Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, I think that they're, they're, they're not living in the real world. What I would say in agreement with you, it is a matter for the, the, the people of Northern Ireland to decide our constitutional future. The difficulty being is that the Northern Ireland Protocol does not does not have the consent of the people of Northern Ireland, uh, uh, despite the fact that, that the, the UK-wide um, referendum decided in favour of leaving the, the European Union. Okay, thank you for that. I, I think as we start to talk these things out, there are some elements in there, Minister, that we would agree on, and I hope that that maybe is a message that can be uh, you know, can be passed out to people today as well. That if there are differences or people feel that there are treatment that is differently, that we can work to try and address those and work to try and iron those out. But that constitutionally, nobody's position today is any different from it was yesterday or from when it was back in 1998, whenever the Good Friday Agreement was supported. And I think that's a very clear message to, to send out to people uh, in case that they would interpret that from some of the messages today, that there is a change in the constitutional status because there, there clearly isn't. I, I was I, I, the remarks that you made um, 
Gary, about the applications closing today for the EU settlement scheme. You had said at the very end there about that you will continue delays with the Home Office uh, regarding late applications or special conditions. Could you maybe detail to us just some of um, how that will actually, how those um, that relationship works with the Home Office? Because I know that certainly MLAs frequently have difficulty accessing the, the Home Office, and if we do have constituents um, that will suddenly find themselves in the next week or in the next month or two that they are subject to not making an application or difficulties, is there a methodology for MLAs to be able to come to the Executive Office and have those views represented to the, the Home Office? Is, is there some sort of formalised route for that? Yeah, thanks for that, Chair, and apologies. I, I don't know. I, I'm getting a bit of interference in the line. I don't know uh, maybe where that's coming from, but uh, I'm just going to – I do have some more information in relation to it, so if you just bear with me, uh, Chair, I'm going to just go through this because uh, we are aware that, unfortunately, despite the extensive uh, communications, both from our First and Deputy First Ministers, but also from the Home Office, there, it is still likely that there will be uh, some eligible citizens that will not have applied uh, to the scheme on time, uh, so they will lose their existing rights. So, for example, uh, the right to work and benefits, including their, their pensions, um, if previously eligible, the, the access to free health care, if previously entitled, and access to education or study, those are those are issues which obviously are of great concern. And we understand that many applicants uh, have been requiring a huge level of assistance. Um, the Home Office has provided assurance to us and to officials that they will engage throughout the application process to address any uh, issues or concerns that uh, people may have regarding uh, missing evidence, for example. And they've also made it very clear to us that those who have applied by the deadline uh, but haven't yet received their outcome will continue to have their existing rights, which I think is uh, very important. Uh, and they'll be issued with a certificate of application to demonstrate that as well. Uh, importantly, applications to the scheme uh, can still be made after the deadline by eligible citizens having reasonable grounds to make a late application. Unfortunately, however, the Home Office has confirmed that from tomorrow, any EA, uh, citizen making a late application will lose their existing rights until the status can be granted under this late application process. So I think that those who already had it uh, will continue to have the rights but those who are, are new applicants, unfortunately, that's a different situation. Um, we've also been advised that the Home Office will adopt a compassionate and flexible approach. That's their terminology. However, the loss of the right to work uh, or to benefits risks causing hardship. So our officials have continued to engage with the Home Office on this issue. Uh, for example, we understand that those already in receipt of the benefits will not lose them immediately, whilst the late application is processed, but those making a new claim will not be eligible, as I've said. Um, we can assure you, Chair, that the officials are continuing to engage with our uh, counterparts. Uh, you know, whilst I haven't yet spoken to officials on this basis, but I am sure that should assistance be required from MLAs, that uh, the Home Office uh, will be accessible. But I, what I will do, Chair, and no doubt uh, junior, junior Minister Keeney would agree, that we can come back to uh, the committee with maybe information on how MLAs can raise concerns directly. I take your point that at times when we raise um, issues on behalf of constituents, the Home Office aren't always <laughs> the most accessible. Uh, so um, I'm, ha I'm happy to endeavour to try and get you some response, but hopefully that gives a bit more clarity in terms of the current status. That's great. Thank you very much, Minister. That's appreciated. Maybe if I could just make a final point. Travel agents are absolutely desperate for the support that there was 
that was announced. Is there any update on that scheme? We are writing to you for an update on it, but I think it would be absolutely crucial that we can provide a message to the travel industry that the support that was promised for them is there and that that help can be forthcoming very, very quickly because they're finding trading conditions very, very difficult at the moment with this summer, and that's with some travel opened up, never mind what they have gone through in the past. So is there some assurance that we can get from yourselves that that scheme is imminent and that payments will be made? Yes, Colin, I've come in on that. Uh, The the funding has been ring-fenced for that scheme. Uh, PEO uh, undertook to uh, draft up, develop the scheme and to oversee its implementation. Uh, I don't have a date uh, for release at this point, but I, like yourself, am one of the MLAs who have received representations from uh, uh, small travel agents, family-based travel agents, who have experienced huge, huge pressures. Uh, they, they, They have really been put to the pin of their collar as a result of everything we've come through in the last 15 months and more. Uh, so there has been a response uh, to, to those representations. And in order to try and ensure that this particular need is, is effectively addressed, it's for that reason that TEO agreed to take the scheme under its remit. Uh, the funding has been uh, ring-fenced. And I, I'll, following up on this meeting, go back today and establish for yourself when we would actually hope to have an indicative date for the release of funds to the affected travel agents. If I, if, if I can just make one other point, Colin, going back to uh, the earlier exchange you had with, uh, with Gary, uh, this whole issue needs to be uh, very, very quickly de-dramatised and de-politicised. Uh, it, it's fast getting out of control. And I mean, I understand there are apprehensions within the unionist section of, of our community. I get that. I hear it. I'm concerned about the fact that those apprehensions exist. I think that there are extremist elements who are manipulating those apprehensions and seeking to inflame them. But but worst of all, perhaps, I think it's important to note that, in fact, it's the British government and this particular Tory administration that has effectively gamed and inflamed those apprehensions. And they've gamed and inflamed them purely on the basis of a pushback against the European Union because... Uh, it's not an agenda which is in any way associated with managing new trading realities. It's entirely about uh, the primacy of a narrow form of English sovereignty. And I actually think that our society are being played in the middle of that kind of standoff, which, which is entirely inappropriate, uh, when in fact it was this uh, British government which, eyes wide open, negotiated every element of the withdrawal agreement and the detail of the protocol itself. So to that extent, I, I think it is important that we ensure that this, this conflation of issues stops. You cannot mix up new trading realities that are a direct consequence of the protocol. And the protocol is a direct consequence of Brexit. Let's remember that in the final analysis, first principles, Brexit, Brexit has brought about this calamitous situation. But we, we shouldn't mix up uh, the new trading realities brought about by uh, the protocol with broader constitutional issues. So, you know, let's not muddle the picture with references to arcane and anachronistic pieces of legislation that no longer apply. The Act of Union was taken over by the Government of Ireland Act. The Government of Ireland Act was taken over by the Good Friday Agreement, and the Good Friday Agreement sets out the roadmap 
for how when people in this part of the island decide there will be a change to the current constitutional situation. Okay, thank you for that, Minister. Okay, I'm going to pass on to the Deputy Chair, to John Stewart, for some questions. John, if you're there, please, go on ahead. Yeah, we have indeed, Colin. Thanks very much. Um, Junior Ministers, it's good to see you. Declan, Gary, nice to see you on the other side this time. I uh, hope you're settling well. Um, it's great to see. Um, just a couple of points to me. Just to firstly echo the, the, the Chair's concerns around the independent travel agents and consultants, and, and I am pleased to hear both from yourselves that that is in the pipeline. I know having spoken to many of them, and we take our hat off to those that attended Stormont last week as part of the protest, that they are massively under the cosh, and you will be aware of that. And what I hope, and knowing that the money's now ring-fenced, is that it can be delivered into their bank account as quickly as possible. There's nothing more disheartening than hearing money's coming and then waiting three, four, five months sometimes for those that have appealed of other schemes to get that. For many, that will be too long. So... They're probably going to be the last to come out of this pandemic in terms of the impact of the business. So just whatever can be done, let's make it happen um, as quickly as possible. But I'm sure you agree with me on that already, uh, folks. Um, I'll agree with the chair in terms of today's judgment that it was significant. Probably not, um, as you can imagine, entirely with this analysis of it. Um, but I do agree that whatever people's position on it, it remains a time for cool heads for um, engaging with each other and to try to work through to find solutions of that, there is no doubt. But I would get a record that the, the judge found today that the withdrawal agreement itself, which includes the protocol, does conflict with the 1800 Act of Union in respect of free trade between GB and Northern Ireland. And I do personally believe that should be a grave concern to us all. Um, in terms of just a, a couple of aspects of questions, we keep hearing about and um, keep seeing these um, cliff edges, whether it be in chilled meats or medicines, or anything else and i think we cannot have a situation where we have continued instability around these welcome in the grace periods do you both agree that at some stage we're going to need security and clarity and is it your take that these extensions of the grace periods are to actually find alternative solutions or is it to um re-actually orientate supply lines because if that was the case that would be concerning to myself interested to hear your thoughts on that one first of all well, perhaps, John, and, and good to see yourself, and congratulations on taking up your new position. Um, it may well be that in the, uh, the, the spaces that are created uh, through further extension of these grace periods, that uh, supply chains will reorientate, that, uh, that, that, that they will adapt. I'm, I'm aware, for example, that Tesco's uh, is now uh, procuring increasingly from local producers to ensure that uh, their supply chains locally in the region are effectively addressed, uh, rather than run the risk of, of any possible potential disruption in relation to imports from Britain to here. So there's an illustration of, of just some practical adjustment in terms of supply chains, but absolutely great grace periods should be used in order to establish permanent long-term solutions to these issues and, and I do believe that they are achievable. Mara Shevchevic on Monday confirmed, uh, as he did previously in the Joint Committee that on the 9th of June, that uh, the European Union is prepared to change legislation in order to get a permanent fix in relation to the matter of medicines. But clearly that needs to be done very expeditiously because there's a clock ticking now in relation to uh, the issue of medicines itself 
On the matter of the chilled meats, I think that's a very welcome development. I think it, it, it's a, a further indication of a willingness to be pragmatic, to find solutions. But if I can actually take you back then to the Joint Committee on, on the 9th of June, uh, good grace and flexibility needs to then in turn be reciprocated. And he actually made a, a very uh, telling observation um, in his comments uh, to David Frost during the meeting when he said, you seem to think we don't take your concerns on board, but your flexibilities are moving targets, constantly moving the issue. And we need assurance that you will work towards compliance. So this is a two-way street. I think we've now got uh, some additional flexibility around the issue of chilled meats. Let's ensure that that space is properly utilised to actually find the kind of permanent solution that I think can remove that issue as one of those irritants that we've all been living with over the last period. And I actually do believe that the permanent solution is to be found in the form of the, uh, the, the, the Swiss model or ourselves joining the, uh, the European Union SPS zone. Uh, where in fact you can achieve that level of alignment. And I'll finish on this point. Currently, uh, the the health uh, food standards are reflective of the the no-risk standards uh, that apply within the European Union. So this is very achievable. This can be a rollover. It doesn't require a further negotiation. Uh, If in fact we can de-dramatise the issues in the way that they need to be de-dramatised and get David Frost and his colleagues to actually focus in on what is good for our local businesses, good for our local processors, our local producers, and those businesses who actually can benefit with, will benefit from the necessary stability and certainty they're currently denied. Thanks, John, just to come in on that as well, uh, just to add a bit more uh, to, to the health situation, but but I agree with you in terms of the SBS checks and the, the grace periods. It's, it's a significant uh, issue, and it's one that, that you know discussions are ongoing, and hopefully we get a bit of uh, clarity later on today. Uh, that being said, uh, it's not really clarity because the grace periods, by their nature, uh, don't provide stability. Uh, we need to see long-term solutions, and you know I, I listened to uh, Vice President uh, Sevcovic uh, earlier on this week when he said that uh, you know flexibility is required and that the, the EU are willing to be flexible, but on the other hand, saying that you know the Northern Ireland Protocol needs to be implemented in full, and those two positions do not match; they're not compatible, uh, and, and we need to see a change in that respect. And I know that you know when I speak to consumers, uh, you know I'm on myself when I speak to businesses. They can't understand, they cannot understand why animal and plant products from DB uh, are no longer uh, safe and you know, for, for our uh, economy and why it is not possible to have those flexibilities, particularly given the fact that Northern Ireland itself is such a, a small market. But in terms of the medicines, John, I don't know if you want just in terms of a bit more information in relation to that, but you know, my understanding and our understanding is that the UK government has proposed uh, bespoke arrangements to the EU in relation to uh, medicines. 
um, you know, it would enable medicines to be able to move uh, through GB into Northern Ireland without the need for expensive and burdensome retesting. And the Department for Health is still waiting an outcome of those discussions. But whether it be uh, medicines, whether it be chilled products, sausages, whether it be pet, um, pet uh, passports, those issues uh, cause huge amount of concerns for those uh, you know, um, affected. And I think that uh, we owe it to all of those to ensure that we provide a level of stability um, and a level of flexibility uh, to allow them to continue uh, trading in the way that they, they should be able to. Yeah, totally agree. Um, thanks, Gary. I know that um, our health minister has been working tirelessly on the medicine side of things because it is something that keeps him and many others asleep uh, awake at night because of the impact that that could have here. So, and again, just um, urge yourselves and the executive office to do all you can continue and to support him in that. And I think it is wrong that up until now he still had some clarity in that on that such an important issue. Um, I think we all agree that. Um, Pragmatism and flexibility through all this is essential on all sides. And I'm just wanting, I'm keen to know how you think that the EU's zero risk approach factors into that. Because by definition, I mean, what I got from this assessment the other day was do everything we ask of you, you know, and it'll be okay. I'm just wondering, you know, how, how does pragmatism fit alongside zero risk? And is there that willingness do you see? on their behalf to actually adapt and, and, and allow special arrangements within that. And the final thing is, um, just within um, the Joint Committee, uh, what engagements have we had with the EU and the UK about Northern Ireland having full representation at the Joint Committee rather than just observer status? I find the, on, on, well, on the last point, John, I find that to be a huge democratic deficit. Uh, it's a matter that we have raised time and time again. Um, for example, in the pre-meeting that we did uh, with David Frost prior to the Partnership Council, to, to just to illustrate, I think, uh, a, a very unyielding uh, and uh, re resistant approach to ensuring that our voice is heard, he advised uh, ourselves, colleagues from Scotland and Wales who were present, that we were present to hear, but not to speak, and that uh, any expression of our interests would be solely through uh, himself, David Frost, in relation to the, the Partnership Council. He also made the point that uh, we're really only entitled to attend the Joint Committee. I thought it was an unnecessary comment, but he said, we're only entitled to attend the joint committee uh, because uh, the uh, because Ireland, the, uh, the the Southern Irish state, attends and, and speaks when issues arise. Now, uh, this is a particular problem for us. It's also a problem for our colleagues in Scotland and Wales who also want to have a, attendance and participation rights at the joint committee. The the, the two joint ministers do have uh, access to speak. Uh, they they reflect. Uh, their positions. I think we get all of the issues ventilated, and that includes the issues as as they divide us in relation to these issues, because uh, the uh, there, there'd be a fair representation of the concerns of uh, the the very all the various parties by both by both ministers, even though they have a a separate position that's not an agreed position within the executive office. We know what the common ground is, but then there are clearly points of of divergence between us. But we do need to have a much more effective form of engagement and representation 
for ourselves, for our region, for our executive and for the assembly and for our business and wider civic society in relation to joint committee issues and how we proceed in the time ahead, particularly with regard to increased engagement with the European Union. I think it's been very helpful to hear from the European Union and Mara Shevchevich's attendance, which I thought was quite unprecedented with yourselves last Monday, reflects this, that they are willing to have a direct engagement with uh, our region, uh, with our political institutions and civic society. So I think we double down on that. We certainly continue to make very strong representations to the, uh, the British government for increased democratic access, but I don't think that we will find any resistance on behalf of the European Union in, in giving us both bilateral access and uh, ability to represent our interests, as well as a flexibility in involving us in the, the relevant committees that fall within the, the remit and the aegis of the, uh, the Partnership Council and also in relation to the, the Joint Committee and its work in the time ahead. Okay, thanks, Nicola. Okay, thank you, John. If we could ask next now for Martina Anderson to be brought up into the uh, spotlight and just remind any other members that if you wish to speak, just to use that hands-up function, but we'll pass over now to Martina. Uh, thank you, Chair, and, and thank you again to, uh, to the junior ministers. Um, I want to say that um, as an MLA on other committees, I find it really helpful the um, the amount of times that uh, that the first and deputy first minister and the junior ministers attend uh, these meetings and um, I just want to also make a point in the first instance to Gary welcome you uh, as, a, as a colleague here from from the city and and in your new role and Gary this is something you've inherited so forgive me for this but you know it really isn't good enough Gary that we're still waiting on a response from the common framework you know, we cannot do our job. We can't scrutinise properly. And we've had the junior ministers in front of us on a number of occasions. And, uh, you know, we've been promised that, uh, I believe it's your end in terms of the DUP end that is holding this up, hasn't signed off on it. And I'm just wondering, Guy, um, given that this is the first opportunity for you, but the last time for us uh, before it goes into recess, is there any possibility that this committee will get a response uh, on the common framework before we go into recess? Yeah, well, thanks, Martina, and thanks for your, your kind words, first of all. Uh, I know that you did raise it. I, I look back uh, at the Hansard, and, and, uh, as I would do, and I've seen that, that you had raised this. I know you've raised this on previous occasions. Uh, and I, as I said in my opening remarks, I genuinely do, uh, on behalf of the, the junior ministers and the executive office, apologise that we haven't been able to get that further information. Uh, we have requested it uh, from DERA. Uh, obviously, they're responsible and they've assured us they will respond as soon as possible. Uh, that being said, it is my understanding uh, that the uh, DERA minister has sought further legal advice. Now, I can't go into any more detail because I don't have it. That is my understanding. But what I would say, and you're right in the sense that um, from my experience within the executive office, both the first and deputy first minister and the junior ministers have always been keen to come to the committee. So as soon as we can have that information to share it with you, we will do that. Uh, and I will feed back, of course, the fact that uh, you're not happy in terms of the length of time that that has taken. But I can assure you when we have it, we will share that information with you. Um, okay, uh, and I'm sure Declan, you've heard us say it often enough, and I know the hold up isn't 
at your end. Can I, can I just make a comment just in relation to the High Court judgment today and the rejection of the challenges on all grounds? And it was conscious of what was said about facts being important because the judgment stated that the Brexit withdrawal agreement, which is the more recent legislation, automatically overrides the older uh, laws, as it says. So whilst the facts are important, I think for people across this society, you know, people will talk about um, the Act of Union, the 1800 Act of Union, but the Act of Union was repealed, as we all know, by the, the 1920 Government of Ireland Act. And then the Government of Ireland Act was subsequently repealed by the Good Friday Agreement. So Britain's claim to the North was reduced uh, to the principle of consent. But that principle of consent is something that we all talk about um, still applies. And Brexit hasn't changed that. So I think that is important that we deliver that message uh, to people out there. And I'm not taken away from the fact that there has been a harder border at sea. And uh, we were very pleased to hear some of the solutions that are coming forward. And hopefully there'll be another one before the end of this meeting in relation to chilled meats. But I'm conscious of what uh, the junior ministers are saying and, and what Declan is saying is let's not waste this grace period. Um, can, can, I, can I ask you in relation to your views about, because a lot of the parties have said it, around a democratic deficit? given that we have no MEPs, and of course you have two former MEPs now in this committee in the European Parliament, but there's a poll out today, and I don't know if you've had a chance to, to see it, and the poll has said that 71% of those polls felt that there was a lack of oversight, uh, which of course there is. Now, uh, you may say for us it's fortunate in terms of for Sinn Féin, but we're the only party in the North who have representation, representatives uh, in the European Parliament. We still have an MEP there. But, you know, see on the grounds that given that there is cross-party agreement, at least that there is a democratic deficit, um, you know, given the fact we need participation, we need linkage, we need involvement in the post-COVID, post-period post, um, uh, now that we're in with the protocol, this post-protocol environment, you know, to the ministers, could you give us your views about maybe possibly pursuing the issue of observer status for the North so that we can in some way address the democratic deficit that has been talked about? Well, maybe I go first, uh, Declan. Um, so, so in terms of the democratic deficit, I, I think that uh, Junior Minister Keoghney did uh, highlight the fact that um, there have been, you know, prior to the likes of the Joint Committee, the Partnership Committee, uh, we would tend to meet with uh, Lord Frost, prior to that, there were items on the agenda, whether it be SPS and um, the, the medicines issue, those types of issues would be raised. The difficulty being, uh, Martina, is that, you know, whilst I think that Northern Ireland uh, needs a voice no matter where it is, uh, whether it be uh, at Westminster or at Europe, um, th th that's important. But that being said, one of the frustrations that I would have is that, you know, I, I think that you would agree that, you know, we have been vocal in terms of our concerns on behalf of the business community, albeit the times were coming from different angles. But I think that um, it would be said that, you know, none of us would be setting out deliberately. I wouldn't like to think so to, to harm the business community or, or to any of our communities. We're out to try and get the best uh, for Northern Ireland. But the lack or the, the willingness 
um, whether it be to listen, but to act upon the genuine concerns that have been raised. That's more of a frustration for me uh, because uh, we know the issues have been highlighted time and time again, yet you know, once again, we're looking at you know, three-month extensions of, of, you know, for example, chilled meat uh, products. You know, those types of um, scenarios don't do nothing to create stability. So whilst I'm all for uh, being in, whether it be in the Joint Committee, whether it be in the, the uh, in any other working group for that matter, it's important that the views are not only heard, but they're actioned upon. But we'll continue to make the case, Martina, that, that uh, you know, we should be in there uh, and and that we should be we should be heard, and that there should be actions come out of that as well. So I think that there are a number of things uh, that can be addressed on this regard, Martina. Starting with uh, what currently exists, uh, we have the prospect of a parliamentary partnership assembly. I have asked our own officials whether discussions have progressed in relation to what that means for democratic representation for the uh, executive uh, itself and also for the assembly. They haven't been able to clarify that at this point in time. I've also raised the absolute importance, and this has been something I have repeatedly raised, uh, of ensuring that civic society here in the North also has uh, deep-rooted involvement and participation in in all of the relevant uh, subsidiary structures that are due to be established and that it has full access uh, of uh, consultation uh, and in terms of seeking accountability uh, from both the European Commission and the, the British government. So I think we do have to uh, pursue that quite vigorously to ensure that uh, our role in a parliamentary partnership assembly is not some kind of a a bit, a bit role, a, a, a side, uh, 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 if, if you like, a, um, a role on the side which is of little meaning uh, and substance. In terms of the observer status proposal, again, that's a, 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 an idea which I share. I think that uh, it, it is something that can be delivered on if the political will exists. You will know that there is precedent within the European Union uh, for that to have been delivered specifically for the Cypriot Turks to have uh, that type of level of uh, observer participation within the EU. I see no reason why we should not be seeking as an executive, as an assembly, for similar participation and representation also. I think the, the more engagement that we have with the European Commission with the European Union as as a as a as a multilateral institution, the better. I know we have an NI bureau in Brussels. I think we have to look at how that can in fact become uh, much more embedded within the, uh, the the political institutions and the access that is available to that within the European Union. That ensures, therefore, that uh, our voice is heard directly. I I quite frankly have no faith whatsoever in uh, British government officials who, who do engage with our officials. I know that our officials uh, genuinely and uh, energetically represent our case. But when you look at some of the issues that we've tried to progress on the basis of working through British officials, when you look at the manner in which we have been excluded from these negotiations in the past to date, right up until December 2020, 
then we could be frankly excused for having no faith in the British government uh, demonstrating a real interest or, or concern with either taking on board our ideas, our views or our concerns or that of our business community or indeed directly involving us in a democratic representative way. So I, I think we, we find ourselves outliers in relation to this particular British government's approach. Uh, the, the Welsh administration, the Scottish administration have, have very, very, are very, very discontented about the manner in which they've been treated. Uh, also pushed to the, uh, to, to the sidelines, treated as outliers. I think we have to work very hard at uh, ensuring that sessions like last Monday with Mara Shevchevich are repeated, uh, that we use the access that we have with him, that we use the access that we have with the European Union Embassy in London, which has jurisdiction here for the North, that we increase our, our engagement with the ambassador, the EU ambassador for this place and as officials to ensure that all of our concerns politically uh, in economic terms and that of wider society are properly heard by the European Union. And then to seriously explore the potential for securing that praise of observer status. Um, Chair, just finally, I, I, find it, um, I find it most disappointing to hear um, but not surprising, but that the, the British government has told our representatives uh, at the Partnership Council that you can listen, um, but you cannot speak. Um, and I don't think, I don't think that's, that affords itself, even the, the strand two of the Good Friday Agreement, for instance, and I would ask maybe the ministers if, if any consideration has been given to the NSMC uh, being told that it would consider EU dimensions of all relevant matters, you know, including the implementation of EU policies, and that the NSMC's views are to be taken into account and represented at all appropriate EU matters and meetings. So in, in that context, uh, I would say to the junior ministers, um, there should be some kind of a effective challenge, not that it may not do anything anyway, but I'm sure you have raised that with the British government uh, at that meeting to say that Jews could only listen um, but not be heard. Um, that's quite insulting, but it's in the context of the Good Friday Agreement strand too. Uh, maybe that's something at a later date that the junior ministers would come back and explore with us as to how that could be actioned further. Yeah, I think we could take that away and ask uh, officials to give some attention to that particular point, Martina. Mm -hmm. uh, we should do that. We'll, we'll have a recess over the summer. Let's get some feedback from officials in relation to what they think might be possible with regard to an NSMC uh, intervention. Uh, the, the, the broader point of the, the disregard that has been displayed to this place, to our representatives, to our institutions by the British government, that, that has been a characteristic uh, in my experience of uh, dealing with uh, the, uh, the British government through the, uh, the, the negotiations, the, the joint ministerial committee. It's a view which is shared by the Scottish and by the Welsh. Uh, they are, they're very disaffected, but I think it also reflects on the, uh, the lack of commitment that actually exists on, be, on the part of this particular Tory administration for respecting uh, the regional arrangements, the devolved settlements, uh, the, the regional assemblies and uh, executive committees which exist. 
I don't think they're serious about working with us in any transparent or democratic way. And that then feeds, feeds directly into all of these other associated difficulties as we try to navigate our way through uh, Brexit. Chair, just to come in in relation to the Partnership Council issue, uh, I, I obviously don't take the same view uh, as Declan or Martina in relation to uh, the Northern Ireland Vice has been shut out. Uh, I think it is important that, that we have those pre meetings. I do think it is important that we have our voices heard. Uh, that being said, you know, this is a, a group that has been established uh, between the, the European Union and the United Kingdom government. Uh, I think people uh, across society will judge for themselves in terms of whether or not they believe the European Union have listened to the concerns. They may have listened to the concerns of one particular side of a community. Uh, I think that's not the basis of the Northern Ireland that I uh, want to be part of or that the majority of our citizens want to be part of. Uh, and in relation to, and Martina touched on what the survey today, and like all surveys, we take them um, you know, as they come. Uh, but the survey very interestingly pointed out that the majority of people do not feel that the Northern Ireland Protocol on Balance is good for Northern Ireland. So if you're going to use figures in terms of surveys, it is important that we point out that in terms of the, the, the opinion of the general public, it is not in, in favour of uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol. And I think that that is important to highlight as well. One concluding point on that, and, and I think it's a point that Gary misses. The Partnership Council and uh, the, the, the relevant government's governance structures which now exist was negotiated by the British government, Gary. So where there are democratic deficits within the, the structure that currently now apply, it is as a direct result of the British government having negotiated those terms. And that's why I think we have it with, with, with the need constantly to look for a workaround. If we're not get, if we're getting deaf ears from the British government in relation to all of these issues, then let's use the access that's been offered to us by the European Commission and the European Union to ensure that the, the concerns of, of business and wider society are in fact heard. Okay, and um, I suppose, Martina, there, there, there is uh, obviously Brexit and obviously a democratic deficit, but I suppose it does give us nearly 25% of our committee membership, so uh, that matter is not lost on us either. And I also note that uh, while those questions have been answered, that there has been a, an extension to the protocol grace period until the 30th of September. And um, so certainly uh, for Gary and for Martina, I think that uh, my esteemed party leader, the Doherty Sausages, are going to have a, a continued uh, competition uh, for a few more months yet anyway. But th that announcement has been made regarding that extension period. We're going to move next then to uh, Emma Sheeran, please, for some questions. So if we could bring Emma up into the spotlight, please. Emma. Thanks, Chair, and thanks to both ministers. Following on from the, the conversation that was just had there around the protocol, and obviously there are different views, and notwithstanding that, um, when, when we talk about the impact of the protocol and when people are referring to whether it be benefits or negatives, and I can think of you know, the contract uh, awarded to Dale Farm last week, the, the news even in, at the beginning of this week around flour mills uh, across uh, the north of Ireland and how well they're doing and obviously our, our chilled meat producers. But what I wanted to ask um, for an assessment on was more to do with the, the rates situation and we'd had presentations earlier on in the, the year from the Human Rights Commission and from the Equality Commission and I had expressed a view that there's 
perhaps been a delay on the real impact of or rights losses as a as a result of Brexit because of the COVID nineteen situation and the fact that people haven't been you know using their their free movement entitlements this year in the way that they would have been had we not been in lockdown and all the other um, sort of sort of benefits that people previously had access to that you know surgeries were put on hold and all of that and just even when we've been in this meeting I've I've had another query there from a constituent around uh, Minister Swan's one year temporary uh, scheme, which is sort of a, a replacement of the, the cross-border directive that we previously had access to as members of the European Union and that people could get um, elective surgeries elsewhere and get reimbursed for the for the cost. Now, Minister Spawn has, has released the detail of that. The application isn't open yet and, and the scheme isn't open until tomorrow. But we do know that it's only going to be cross-border on the island of Ireland, which means that previous access that people had to elsewhere in Europe and maybe if they were going to see a particular specialist or surgeon um, in another European country, that right has been lost. Um, obviously, there's been refer- references there to the EUSS and we know that that's closing today. We've had sort of assurances and I'm putting that in inverted commas from the British government around the access that's still going to be um, to the EUSS in terms of special circumstances, but we don't have clarity on what exactly constitutes those sort of extenuating circumstances and if people have to make a late application. And we, we had heard in, in recent times about the sort of panic around people who hadn't realised they had to apply for for their children and I've had messages even over the weekend from people wanting to see if they had to apply for their child and maybe one parent Irish, one parent from another EU country and not sure what what they had to do. Um, so I just wondered if we could you know, have an assessment from yourselves around that sort of rights deficit as a result of leaving Brexit and what we can do um, within the Assembly to address those issues. Uh, thanks, Chair. I know that uh, Junior Minister Kearney did speak briefly in terms of the rights positions in his opening remarks, but I, I do, I suppose, disagree with the, the, the terminology of a rights deficit. I think that, um, as you've highlighted, the UK uh, government have uh, committed to ensuring that uh, there will be no demonization or demonization of our uh, rights, safeguards and our equality of opportunity provisions uh, within uh, Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom as well. Uh, it is my understanding that the uh, Equality Commission and the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission have agreed to undertake and to monitor and scrutinise, um, uh, you know, our, our situation to ensure that there are no um, diminution of rights or safeguards or, or equality of opportunity uh, for our people here in Northern Ireland. Uh, obviously, you have highlighted a number of individual uh, cases which which we're quite happy to take up and to come back to you on, particularly around the health issues that you've raised uh, on behalf of Minister Swan. But we have been assured that um, those rights issues are been addressed through the dedicated mechanism, uh, and there are processes in place to ensure that where uh, people feel that there are rights issues, then there's a mechanism there to to monitor and to scrutinise that uh, and to address any of those issues uh, going forward. Yes, Gary's correct in that uh, the dedicated mechanism does exist embracing both the Human Rights Commission and the uh, Equality Commission to focus in specifically on Article 2, Emma. The, 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 the fault line, in my opinion, is that we are dealing with an administration um, which uh, is manifest here in this place through the NIO, 
that that has a very poor rights based record. So I have absolutely no doubt about the commitment of uh, the officials and the leadership uh, of the uh, the two commissions in relation to the resolve they'll bring to the dedicated mechanism. But sometimes you only know what you had when you lose it. Sometimes you only learn to appreciate what you previously had when you lose it. And the, there are many distressing situations, I think, that will now arise, not least around the resettlement scheme. I, I have constituents who have expressed concerns to me uh, about the situation they will find themselves in because their applications were in fact submitted in good time three, four months ago. But as yet, uh, the, the system has not responded to the status of their application. Uh, so the, the, the fear I have is that uh, people will fall between the cracks and then that throws up many, many difficulties. And Gary and, uh, referenced the, the hot button uh, rights issues that could be directly and adversely affected if someone loses their, uh, their uh, settlement status here. Uh, there are a number of the lead rights organisations in Britain that notwithstanding an indication that that compassionate approach vocalised by the British government will be shown and taken, that uh, that's not good enough, that's not codified well enough to ensure that uh, everyone will in fact be included within the scheme. Uh, so there are concerns abroad about how effective an approach will be taken. So I think we'll have to rely upon our own dedicated mechanism, our own uh, regionally based uh, rights organisations, uh, hope that they will stay very focused on, on these challenges and difficulties. But truth be told, we, we, we do have a hard border in relation to rights which has been introduced. We don't have access any longer to the Charter of Fundamental Rights. And in your opening remarks, you referenced the fact that we're, uh, we're, we're now no longer going to have access to that cross-border health directive as a result of the changes that have been wrought. I'm quite sure that the Minister for Health will, will do his utmost to ensure that our citizens here continue to have access to the, the same standard of, of, of services uh, on an all-island basis. But you're quite right to say that in the past, there was a facility for uh, members of our families and our local neighbourhoods uh, to travel beyond this island and these islands uh, to access essential medical services. And all of that, I think, now is very much up in the air. But, uh, I mean, let, let's, let's work closely with uh, the Human Rights Commission and the, uh, the Equality Commission to ensure that uh, they ensure that uh, we do everything possible to ensure that no one falls between the cracks on, in relation to any of these issues in the future. Okay, happy enough, Emma. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've still uh, maybe potentially a few other members. Before we go on, could I just maybe remind all members if we could keep the questions uh, short? I won't say that if the answers could be shorter, but if they could certainly be shorter than we've had the date, it would be appreciated because we do sometimes need to take two answers in, in each round of questions, so it would just help us. But if I could ask next for Diane Dodds to be brought up into the spotlight, and we'll pass over to yourself, Diane. Thank you, uh, Colin. So um, we've just heard that um, there has been uh, an extension of the deadline for the chilled meats issue. But this is not 
any way for business to go on and we cannot sustain this. So, I mean, the vice president said on um, Monday that this was to allow further discussion until October. Um, so we keep hitting deadlines, we keep hitting crisis situations um, and that, I would suggest, is not uh, good for business. Um, it is clear that the EU see it as an opportunity to um, reorientate supply lines, which is in direct contravention um, to what the protocol should be about anyway. Um, and it's not the fact that we can't make sausages in Northern Ireland. Of course we can. We have the best food and the best produce, I think, um, anywhere. And I buy my sausages local. But, but the fact remains, the fact remains that that um, access to our main market is impeded and it is the protocol that impedes it. I just um, want to, to sort of focus on, on a couple of things which I think um, are important. Um, today's judgment, um, while it says the protocol is lawful, does actually say that it does um, alter um, those constitutional arrangements. Um, and this, again, is in direct contravention, which both Mara Sefcovic and Lord Frost have indicated on previous occasions, and which they say is in uh, the first article of the TCA. So I am quite concerned about that. I'm also concerned about the impact for stability in Northern Ireland. Because if we keep saying over and over again that we need to make political progress and that the only way to make political progress is to have consent from both parts of the community, then clearly the protocol does not have the consent of the wider unionist community. And everybody in this committee should be very concerned about the implications for that. Now, I do not want to see any disruption in Northern Ireland. That is not in our good and not for our interests. But I think we should all be concerned about the lack of consent from the unionist community. The Vice President chose not to answer that point for me on Monday um, and went off on, on another uh, tack. But I think this committee has to face up to that issue. Can I just say that while we focus on SPS issues, and a Swiss-style SPS agreement is only of any value if the whole of the United Kingdom sign up to a Swiss-style SPS agreement. That is the only time it is of any value. And while we focus on SPS, there are a myriad of other issues that impact Northern Ireland's economy. I have spoken to businesses over and over again. One business in Northern Ireland tells me that the actual bureaucracy, just the form filling of the protocol costs them £10,000 per month. The impact of, on competitiveness is huge in these areas. Another firm tells me that, for example, um, we are still subject to EU anti-dumping taxes on steel, on aluminium, et cetera, brought in from GB. On aluminium, that is 34%. GB firms don't have to pay it because they've done away with it. Northern Ireland firms do. When we make our product and send it back to market in GB, that impacts on our competitiveness. So the Trader Support Service certainly um, is not really fit for purpose. Um, Things like the anti-dumping taxes, 
issues around how we will be full partakers in uh, new UK trade deals. Those should also concern the committee and perhaps it's something that when Shauna gets all the pieces of, of research done that she's going to do, we should be looking at as well. But just to, 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 to say that while we focus on SPS, there are a myriad of other issues. Competition's another one, fair competition. How do we ensure that for Northern Ireland firms? Um, and those should all be on the agenda for TU. Thanks, Chair, and obviously thanks, Diane, for that. Um, I very much agree, of course, with, with everything that you've raised. Uh, I think that the announcement uh, today in relation to the chilled meats products, um, whilst it prevents another cliffage, uh, what it does is, of course, it just extends that for another three months. Uh, it does nothing for uh, stability. Uh, when I speak with businesses and when I'm out uh, speaking to uh, local employers, uh, they tell me that what they want is they, they, they need long-term solutions. Um, the long-term solutions give them then the ability not only to uh, be sustainable, but also to grow and to invest. And that's what we want. Uh, we need that long-term uh, stability. But you're right, the issues are not just about sausages and chilled meats. They're much wider than that. Now, this is There's the political issues, which I agree with you in terms of the announcement today in relation to the High Court decision. I think that it would be wrong of us to downplay that. At the same time, we have to be responsible and say to people that you know we do not want to see disruption. But the reality is, unless the concerns that have been highlighted, particularly from the unionist community, unless people begin to listen, then 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 uh, you know we're we're leading our, our country down a very um, very uh, a path that we, we do not want to go down. I think that we need to ensure that we uh, provide that stability and provide that assurance that people are going to be listened to. Uh, I, I think that uh, as the executive office goes forward, look, we will continue to amplify those messages which you have highlighted, um, the concerns. But I think that overall, um, today is not a very good day, particularly for Northern Ireland. I think that uh, we need to take stock of that, that judgment uh, and move forward on the basis that people are now genuinely going to listen to those concerns that have been raised right across society as well. Colin, yeah, taking on board your point about trying to keep the answers shorter, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, Listen, I think that because the point was raised about the judgment by Diane, uh, if, if anything comes out of today's meeting, I, I think it is, and, and, and I'm not picking on unionist leaders, but I am making the point because uh, they will they will articulate these, these issues. I do think that it's essential that political unionist leaders uh, show great restraint uh, and a very sober approach in relation to how they publicly respond and politically engage with the ruling from today. Uh, the, the reality is that uh, Brexit did not command the consent of the majority in this society. So I think we'll have to move away from the zero-sum approach of what's good for unionists or republicans or nationalists. Uh, Brexit has been bad for everybody. And when, when I complained and criticised the Brexit project going back to 2015-2016, and spoke about the, the dangers that I thought it would pose economically. I wasn't just talking about for citizens living in the north or for the island economy. My, my concern extended to businesses in England, Scotland and Wales, to workers and their families in England, Scotland and Wales. And it, it's actually notable. I mean, Diane made the point about you, you may need an overall deal for, uh, for, for, for Britain. 
well, there's something in that because the International Food and Drink Federation has has just in the last few days reported a loss of two billion pounds worth of exports in to the EU in the first quarter of 2021. And and their analysis is not that uh, that is some kind of uh, a teething problem with Brexit. That their assessment is that's a structural consequence of Brexit itself. So there are bigger concerns and effects when we talk about Brexit being a calamity. It's not just a calamity for for this place. And my last point simply would be to note that post Brexit checks uh, rejected less than one percent of British imports in the in the south of Ireland during the course of the last few months. I, I understand that inspectors carried out some 28,000 checks on consignments in a 24-week period uh, coming into uh, to various ports, particularly Dublin. And uh, up until the 20th of June, uh, just 175 consignments out of that total of, of 28,000. That's not 0.7% of those processed were in actual fact rejected. So I think we can bring efficiencies in relation to how all of these matters are dealt with in the time ahead. But of course, we need permanent solutions. We don't, we don't need cliff edges and, and we don't need more uncertainty. Okay, thank you um, for that. And thank you for that question, Diane, and that um, insight to the uh, sausages on the plates in the Dodds household there as well, that they're local, I'm sure to Craig Alvin. Uh, if we could ask, could I ask for George Robinson just to be brought up into the spotlight just to check, George, do you have any questions that you want to check out today? Chair, uh, <clears throat> no question, just ob observations, basically, and uh, it comes no surprise that um, I support everything that uh, Gary has said, the Junior Minister, and Diane as well, my two colleagues, uh, in relation to the protocol. And I know there's a ruling today, but at the same time, that ruling is to be appealed. So maybe just uh, watch watch the space in, in, in the next wee while. Um, the, the other um, the other thing that I wanted to, to mention was the travel agents. And I know it has been discussed, uh, and I'm sure like uh, the rest of the members and the other members of the assembly, there's been uh, quite 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 a lot of uh, letters that came to us. In relation to the, the travel agent situation, I would be very, very supportive of uh, their plight at, at the present time. And um, could the ministers give us um, maybe a wee update on, and it may have been touched on earlier, but um, they could give us another wee update just on when it's going to be resolved, that situation going to be, going to be, be resolved. That's my contribution, uh, Chair. Well, George, thank you very much. And maybe what we could do, George, is, is we'll take the opportunity that you've brought us together at the end of the session by bringing us right back to something that we all agree on, which is that support for the travel agent scheme. And I know that earlier both uh, ministers have undertaken to, to come, you know, to, to come back to us very quickly in writing with an update and and the date on that scheme. And maybe not to speak for the ministers, but if the ministers are happy with that, we we know that you're going to do that for us. So. Um, we can thank you, George, for bringing us to agreement at the end of the session. Can I thank both uh, Ministers Kearney and Middleton for coming along to us today, for being so generous with your time. I know we've 
gone 20 minutes over uh, as we always do but um, they are important issues and there's lots to discuss and we enjoy having the engagement with yourselves to give us an update on where we are so ministers thank you very much indeed for your time today and uh, we look forward to engaging with you again very soon thank you thanks Colin Okay, members, thank you for your um, patience and contributions in that session. Um, can I take this opportunity, if we bring members up into the spotlight, um, I know you will all be exceptionally disappointed to hear that I just I have to leave the meeting at this stage, um, and I'm going to pass over to John Stewart as the uh, Vice Chair of the Committee to take us through the correspondence and future work programme. So, John, if you're happy enough, can I pass over to you at this stage? Yeah, by all means, Chair. No problem. Even as a speech. Thank you. Um, folks, just moving on the correspondence then, unless there's anything else. Um, part eight, um, item or pages one hundred and twenty-one to one hundred and eighty-eight. Um, are we happy for the committee to? Um, or is there anything arising from that? Anyone wants to discuss before we move on? Seeing shaking heads. No. No. Um, are we happy that the committee is content that the accounts are laid in August? Great. Holding heads, great. Okay. Um, in terms of the table pack as well, then, there's just some additional correspondence. I'm sure everybody's seen that again. I'll be happy to note unless there's anything arising from it. Not a chair. Good stuff. Uh, item eight, then, is the forward work plan. Uh, anything within that, folks? Nope. Nope. Just a point that the speaker did issue a memo urging committees not to meet during recess unless it was absolutely necessary and this will be the last meeting before recess then as well um also have to let you know that the first meeting following recess will be the 15th of september and the committee will hear evidence from the executive office and claire bailey on the climate change bill which we discussed in a previous meeting um that'll probably be a lengthy discussion um, the second stage of Claire Bailey's private members bill on climate change was agreed to the Assembly on the 10th of May. I also need to inform you that the Agriculture Minister, Edwin Putz, announced on the 24th of June that his draft climate change bill has been agreed by the Executive and it is intention to move swiftly to the next stage. His aim is, uh, is being to see the bill completed within the current Assembly mandate. Vice Chair. Yes. Sorry, right. maybe something i thought in the forward work program we had a meeting for next week with the first endeavor or maybe that was i canceled. think i thought that as well my understanding is and maybe michael can correct me if i'm wrong that the junior ministers came today and with the turbulence on the better word that was maybe um taken off the agenda Chair, that, that's, that's correct. There's still an open invitation for the first and deputy first minister to come next week, should they choose, but it's, it's looking increasingly unlikely. We'll get them early, very early in the next uh, term, or after September, I think, Emma. I'm sure we'll all be keen to get a chat with them. Um, I don't see anything else here in terms of my agenda. Um, happy to move to item nine then, which is any other business. Does anybody have anything at this stage? No. Nope. Okay. Nope. Um, 
that being the case, then enjoy your recess. I mean, so I'll probably see you next week anyway. But um, if not, we'll see you back in the committee um, in September. Okay, everybody. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.